have not joined us uh, in the house and you'd like to, if there's any way that we can serve you, we're not consumer-minded, but if there's a way we can get you here, there's just something about being together. If you have to be home, we understand that as well. One of the things that we've instituted uh, just recently is a masked area. That doesn't mean we don't wear masks when we come in, um, but we take those off while we sing and are seated, but if you are more comfortable wearing a mask the whole time, maybe you haven't joined us and you're online and you'd like to do that, we have a section that's ready for that. There are places registered for it, so when you register for a service, you just register for the masked service. That doesn't mean that you don't have, or you also don't have to register for both. Like if you're registered for the 9 a.m. mass service, we'll have a spot ready for you and we'll know that you're coming. I want to share some exciting news for New Covenant. Oftentimes when a pastor gives an announcement, people are like, listen, this is all good. This is really, really good. I'm excited for what God's doing. A little bit of context for you. As you may or may not know, Peter Young was leading our small group discipleship really excellently for many years. And about a year and a half ago, a little over that, uh, he stepped away from that, and I've been leading that. That's kind of fallen to my portfolio, and I certainly have a passion for making disciples, and we know that in this place, in this house, God's called us to make disciples, and the primary way we do that is through small groups, and I've been able to lead that with some really capable help from Hannah Bastian and Trisha Prado. They've done a really incredible job, but we've known that that shouldn't be uh, in my portfolio, because you know how when you have too many jobs, you just can't do them all really well? Uh, even though I have a passion for that, and even though we've, I've had some incredible help to do that, we've been looking for somebody that would be called and equipped to do that full-time. Um, now, when we hire, because that's what we're going to talk about uh, for New Covenant, we don't hire for uh, just skill level, and we don't even hire for what people have done in the past. We really hire for relationship, and we hire for missional alignment. So if we're on the same mission, we're after the same stuff, and our hearts are after relationship with one another, that's the primary thing that we look for. Um, and we've found someone who has a passion for disciple-making. We have a, uh, found someone who has a passion for relationship. And we have someone who has a passion for the presence of God like we do in this house. And what's really interesting about this is generally for New Covenant, we like to promote from within. We like to find people that are part of this house. And the person that, the family that's coming to minister to us and be part of the staff at New Covenant uh, is somebody that many of us know, but most of us don't. Uh, but it's somebody I've been related to for a while and connected with and had opportunity to ex- experience the passion of God and how God has knit our hearts together. And so I want to announce to you, I'm really pleased to announce and excited to announce that Joel and Emily Ruddy will be coming on staff at New Covenant. Uh, so so some, of, some of you know, know them, and I just want to encourage you in this. Uh, they're coming from Northgate. Uh, their parents have been involved with ministry for years and brothers involved and family involved and um, it's been really great to see that. They're going to transition from Northgate. Uh, start, Joel will be starting the first week of March, but you won't see him that first weekend in March because he'll be traveling with me. So on the 14th, you get to see him. You might see uh, Emily and Joel around a little bit. And just, I, I want to encourage you. There's, there's something about honoring the gifts that come to us even before we know what they're all about, right? Like, like in Western New York, we're really good at trying to figure people out. Like, we're not super warm when we first get to know you, but once you're in, you're in all the way. You know what I'm saying? Like, we'll give, we'll give that to you. But we're kind of leery. I want to encourage you, let's, let's live different than that. Let's honor the gift that God has given us and expect that there's going to be something that's going to connect even before we really, really, really know them. Uh, sound great? I think it sounds good to me. I'm excited to see what God would do in, in the house. Um, so I want to tell you a story. When Lori and I were getting ready to close on our first house, how many of you have closed on a house before? Like, Yes, congratulations. Uh, I realized that the day, the, the morning of our closing, I think it was early, mor- late morning or early afternoon, we were going to actually go to the bank and close. The morning 
of I could not find the bank check that covered closing costs. And this isn't like you just go to your checkbook and write a regular check. Like you need an official bank check to do that. And we looked all over our apartment. Like everywhere. And I think, I think there might have been some blaming going on. Like what'd you do with it? I don't know. What'd you do with it? Like, and finally, <laughs> she never touched it. See, I told you. <laughs> finally, I, I, said, I had taken, the, the only other place was I had taken the garbage out that morning. And I thought maybe it had like slid into the garbage or gotten put in a pile, you know, by somebody else. Um, <laughs> um, it was my fault. I'll take total, total responsibility. And so um, I went. That wouldn't have been much of a problem. I mean, nobody wants to go through their garbage, right? Have you ever done that, had to go through your garbage? Nobody wants to do that. But here's the problem. We lived in an car- apartment complex that had a trash compactor, a very large, very powerful trash compactor. Like it was for the entire complex. And I went down to it. And I could see the bag that I had put in 20 minutes before. And I could see the check in the bag. But I was not going in that compactor. Because I actually wanted to have like a body that could go to closing later. (laughs) And so the problem was, like I don't know about you, but closing costs are a lot. And I had enough, we had enough in our account to write the closing costs. But we didn't have enough to write two. You know what I'm saying? Like to replace it. So I was scared. Like I had visions of moving into my house and then I had visions of I don't know where we're going to go. Are we even going to be able to close today? And here's the problem. If we didn't close on that, houses were selling. We had made the bid on the house and, you know, got under contract months before, but houses were selling for like $20,000 more than when we had had our bid accepted. So if this fell through, we might be on the hook for $20,000. That was a big mistake, right? Right. Okay, thank you. Thank you. You, I, you all love me. You're trying to protect me. It's a big mistake. And we were very blessed to be able to call the bank and get them to cut us another check. They, we had a great relationship with them. We didn't have enough to f- f- you know, fund it, but I, I'm sure they like, heard the fear in my voice and you know, saw that I was young and said, we'll, we'll take care of it, Mr. Hamlin. Like, no problem. So they wrote another check. I didn't have enough to cover it. They took care of it for me. And I thought that was really great. But then we went to closing, and we had to sign all the papers. I mean, like, if you've closed, you know, like, it's signature after signature after, like, this disclosure and that disclosure. And, I mean, this wasn't even New York State. This was a different state. And it was still a lot of paperwork, like a ton of paperwork. But that's kind of understandable, right? Like a home that you're going to live in for at least a few years, hopefully, with all that money invested in it, you probably should have some paperwork to sign, right? It shouldn't, shouldn't be, just be a handshake and here's the keys. Now, now that makes sense for a deal that's, that's that big, but recently I took my daughter to the orthodontist for an ortho check. Now, an ortho check, if you're not in the orthodontic world, it's simply you go in and the, and the orthodontist looks at it, maybe looks at the retainer and says, yep, you're good. Like it's five minutes in, five minutes out if they're on time. Not a big deal at all. And I walked into the, the dental practice, and I had to sign almost as many forms as when I was signing for my house. There was a check, you know, I had to sign them for her, I had to sign them for me, it was a disclosure for this. I'm like, what am I signing my life away for a 10-minute ortho check? Like, this wasn't the initial setup. This wasn't what they were going to charge me. They already had the insurance, they're already billing us. Like, we've gone through all that. There's not, you know, there's not a plan that we have to get together. This was just simply going in to have it looked at. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what am I, like, what rights am I signing away? Because who has the time to read all that paperwork, right? It's just to cover their butts, 
in case something goes wrong. We, we, we have this society, and here's the thing. It's like for somebody who really cares about their yes being yes and their no being no, who cares about what they say, signing your name actually has a meaning to it, right? It's not just some meaningless thing. And maybe it's a little more meaningless because in our society we sign for credit card things all the time. But what am I agreeing to? What is this contract actually saying? Because this contract doesn't always just a reflection of like what we're willing to do or a business deal. It's, it's about who we are, what we promise to do, our word. And we're going to talk about agreements that are a little bit more than contracts over the next few weeks, Lord willing, in a series called Covenant, where we're going to look at how covenant is greater than contract. In fact, in the Old Testament, this idea of covenant, we'll talk about it, so don't, if, you're, if this is new to you, don't, don't get dismayed. In the Old Testament, when you wanted to do a deal with somebody, you didn't just sign over a piece of paper. You didn't you know, pull out a goat skin and write down the terms and sign your name to it. You would actually create a covenant, and what you would do to seal this covenant, you would what they call cut covenant. The word covenant has to do with cutting, and we'll, we'll look at that as we look at some of the covenants uh, over the next few weeks. We'll look at how that actually was part of the practice. But they would cut covenant. What it literally meant was to like, kill something, split it open, and that, that sealed the deal. How many of you, every time you had to go to the orthodontist, you had to kill an animal to like, sign your name over? That would be a, kind of a weird deal. And so we're going to look at what covenant is. It's a compact, an agreement. It's, it's uh, promises and obligations. We're going to discover that it's so much more than just a handshake or even words on a written contract. And we're going to look at the types of covenant because there's all different ways to look at it. But we're specifically going to zero in on what are the covenants that God has made with us. We're going to see the elements of biblical covenant where there's promises that God makes and there's going to be commandments that God gives in the midst of that covenant. And there's going to be signs that will have to, that will remind us of what the covenant is and there will be blessings and curses and oftentimes we'll see that there is a sacrifice involved because God cuts covenant with us. And here are a couple of the themes that we're going to see hopefully over the next few weeks as we look at covenant. What does it mean? As we travel through this series, here's what we'll discover. First this, God is a covenant-making God. God makes covenant with us. And as we look at these great covenants of Scripture, many of them in the Old Testament, we're going to see a few things about this covenant-making God that we have. First is that he's the initiator of covenant. God loves to make agreements with people. And he doesn't just wait for us to cry out that we need something for him. He thinks ahead and he, he makes covenant with us. He initiates these agreements with us. And that really, in doing that, his covenant that he sets up displays what really matter to him. And that in making covenant with us, he is demonstrating his great love and concern and involvement with our lives. So we're going to see that he's a covenant-making God, but not only that, we're going to see that he's a covenant-keeping God. When Jesus encountered the religious culture around him, he encountered people who were making oaths, and they had different levels of oath-making. They would say, I'm, I'm swearing on the temple, or I'm swearing on the gold of the temple, or I'm swearing on the life of my parents, right? Or I'm swearing on, you know, what I'm going to do next week. Like, they had different levels of their oath-making because they, they knew that if, they, if you swore by the temple, then you really had to keep your word, right? I swear on the life of my mom. Like, you know what I'm talking about? But what the problem with that type of oath-making was they, they, there were some that they were more willing to keep than others, 
They were trying to find an out. Like, I swore in a way that made you believe that I was going to keep my word, but I wasn't really intending to keep my word. They They were working in their heads how they would not have to fulfill the obligations of their contract. Have you ever signed a contract that you had no intention of fulfilling the obligations for? Or you read the contract really deeply and you're like, oh, there's my out. And maybe it's not a contract. Maybe it's just an agreement that you have with your spouse, right? Like, I didn't exactly say that I would do that. Come on, we're human beings. We do this. And Jesus comes into that, that place and he says, listen, I want you to understand something. When it comes to your word, it should be yes and no. Don't try to wiggle out. Like, really mean what you say. Because as human beings, we don't, we don't know how to keep contract really well. But here's the thing. God is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He knows how to keep covenant with us. We will see that God is always faithful in his covenants, even when we are unfaithful. That... Listen, guys, we got to, like, are you daydreaming about what's happening later for your Valentine's dates? Listen, the steak's going to be good, right? But the Word of God is really good right now. Aren't you glad that when you mess up the covenant, He keeps His end of the covenant? I'm telling you, this is good news. Because so often we think, I have failed God, and so somehow God is disappointed with me, and he's not going to keep his end of the bargain. God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. That's the nature of who he is. And as as he keeps it, we're going to see his nature and his great love for his people. So let's start with the first covenant, if you will. Open with me your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, right in the very beginning. Here's what God says. Here's the covenant that he makes with human beings. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and he said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. He starts with an idea in his head, I'm going to create human beings, they're going to be in my image, I'm going to give them something of myself, I'm going to place them in the earth with a plan and with a purpose, and it includes promises includes blessings, includes authority. Really, this covenant is a covenant that he makes with human beings of authority. He says, I'm taking what I have. How many of you know if you make something, you have, you're, you're the boss of that thing, right? Your kids ask you why, because I'm your dad and I made you. you I'm, moms have a, like, I'm your mother and I carried you in my womb, Right? Or just, I'm your dad and God said so, or whatever. But how many of us know that when we, have, when we create something, we have authority over it? God created not only the earth, but he created human beings. And yet he chose to give authority into their lives. It's, it's, look at Genesis chapter 2.15, and then we're going to look back at Genesis 1 again. Genesis 2.15, here's what God says. It says, the Lord placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. So it's almost like he's like, my intention in that first Genesis one, is to you to fill the earth, to rule over the entire thing. We're going to start in the garden. And in, in putting us in the garden and putting human beings in the garden, he said, your job is to tend and watch over it. That word tend is not to learn how to till the soil and pull the weeds. 
That word tend really has to do with subjugation. It's a word we don't like to say. It's slavery. He says, enslave the world to yourself. Rule over it. Have authority over that place. And he said, and also watch over it. That's protect it. Those are both functions of authority. God says, here's my divine authority given to people. And not only do I want you to do this in the garden, I want you to extend it to all the world. God has authority over the world, but he chooses for whatever reason to give it to human beings and to see it carried out in the world. I don't understand that because we jack it up all the time. How many of you would like ultimate power from God so you can extend his kingdom all throughout the world because you know you've just got it together and if everybody just did it the way you thought they should do it, it would be all right. Most of the time we arrest people like that or kill them or throw them in jail or something. We try to stop people like that. But God's original intention for, for human beings rightly aligned with him is that we could handle that authority in the earth and that we would extend the kingdom with him. It's a covenant of authority. You can see it in Genesis 1. Reign over, govern, reign over. I've given to you. Now, covenant is not specifically mentioned in this, the word covenant in this account. In fact, we don't see it till later in Noah, and we'll hopefully look at that covenant. But, but it is a covenant, and God considers it a covenant. In case you're wondering, Hosea chapter 6, verse 7 says this, But like Adam, you broke my covenant and betrayed my trust. In other words, God saw it as a covenant between Adam and himself, between human beings and Eve and himself, between all of us and him. He bound himself to us. But like humans are apt to do, there was a loss of that authority. We jacked it up. In his book, Kingdom Disciples, Tony Evans said this, God provided a house called Edom, Eden, to Adam and Eve to oversee and to manage. They didn't own it, but they were given the freedom to enjoy it to use it, and to maximize it. In fact, they were given great freedom with only one restriction, not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because Satan wanted to make himself the owner, he got Adam to intentionally rebel against God. Keep in mind, Scripture tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam went into his sin with his eyes wide open. Because of his rebellion against God, the crown that God had placed on his head was removed. Adam turned over the rulership of the earth to the devil. Just meditate on that for a minute. God loved us so much. We're so much created in his image. His plans are so involved with us. He was willing to risk us messing it up so that we could have the authority that he's given. So that we could extend his authority into the earth. And we did. The very first humans did it. I remember growing up, I used to get real frustrated at Adam and Eve. Like, if they didn't sin, then we, I wouldn't be burdened by sin. Right? If they didn't sin, I wouldn't have to wear clothes. No, that, that's not what I'm saying. But I, I, would, like, why did, like, I would just blame. Like, why did they do that? Why do I have that nature from them? And I always remember my mom saying, if they didn't do it, you would have. And, I, I, like, that was kind of heavy for, like, a seven-year-old. Like, wait a minute. Everybody would have lived up till me, and then I would have jacked it up. But what she was saying was that human beings, we have a problem. And in giving up that authority and in turning it over to Satan, it changed everything. There was no longer the blessing that came along with authority. Now, for us, practically, what does that look like? Within this church, or the church in general, there's a ton of division right now. And the reason why there's division over opinions about everything is because we like to build our own kingdoms. 
When Satan came to Eve and to Adam and he tempted them, he, he appealed to their desire to be like God, to know good and evil, to make their own kingdom. And that's what they did. They made their own kingdoms. And we do the same thing now. Here's the problem, though. When we build our own kingdoms, he's not the king. And he won't and cannot and will not participate in building our kingdoms. He calls us to participate in building his But here's the thing, here's the great news. God always, God has a redemptive answer and he always does. God had a redemptive answer for Adam and Eve right away. He has a redemptive answer for you and me. And here's the truth, I heard this a while ago, it's not my own. But if we don't have the, in, in terms of anything, like sin, any problem that we're facing, if we don't have a redemptive answer, we do not have God's answer. God's answer to sin God's answer to brokenness, God's answer to to poverty, and God's answer to sickness and disease is always a redemptive answer. Like, we should lean into that for a minute. If we do not have a redemptive answer, we do not yet have God's answer. He always, I feel like I need to preach that. Okay, sin, problems, brokenness, death, and disease. We have lots of answers for that, don't we? And sometimes those answers are like, well, maybe God wanted it. Well, I'm not sure there's anything we can do about it. Maybe we deserved it. Oh, I need to be punished a little bit. You need to be punished a little bit. If we do not have God's redemptive answer to sin, brokenness, death, disease, then we do not have God's answer. God's answer is always redemptive. Always redemptive. And he had a redemptive answer for Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he's giving consequences. He's highlighting what's going to happen. And even in the midst of those consequences, he has a redemptive answer. He says in verse 15, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between Satan and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, that, that pronouncement was not just God saying, hey, listen, women aren't going to like snakes. It wasn't just, hey, watch out because snakes might try to bite you and the way to defeat them is to step on their heads. That's not what he was talking about. It was a redemptive answer. This is the first mention of gospel ever in Scripture. This is the good news that God has an answer for the brokenness that we invited in, for the lack of authority, that, or for the authority that we've transferred to the kingdom of the enemy. He says there will come a time that through the seed of the woman, you will be destroyed. And he wasn't just talking about a, like Satan's head being crushed. He's talking about the authority being taken away from him. Because head in scripture always represents authority. And so what that set up for Satan was a divine uh, understanding that he was going to be crushed. And he was going to be crushed, how? By the seed of a woman. And so Satan started in that moment, he always had an attack on human beings, but he said, I'm going to get this plan that God has out of commission by attacking the seed. And that's what he did. Right from the get-go, right? Who, what were the seed, the first seed of Adam and Eve? Cain and Abel, right? Work with me here, people. I need to find a way to get people online to say yes. <laughs> it was Cain and Abel. 
How did Satan attack that seed? He wanted to get rid of the seed of Adam and Eve because he knew he would be destroyed through it. And so what did he do? He got one of them dead, right? He, he convinced one to kill the other. And the one that he convinced to kill him, he, even though he was still alive, he was removed from the presence of the blessing of God. Satan thought he won. I have defeated the seed of Adam and Eve. But God had a redemptive answer for that. Do you know what the redemptive answer was for one of them being dead and the other one being out of presence? This is Valentine's Day. The answer was sex. That's really good news. That's what scripture says. <laughs> it, <laughs> do you want me to read it for you? Genesis, <laughs> the, the, yes. Genesis 4.25, and Adam had sexual relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to another son. She named him Seth, for she said, God has granted me another son in place of Abel, who Cain killed. The redemptive answer was sex. This, like, we're not going all the way Valentine's Day. Sometimes pastors do that. I've done that before. But this is the Valentine's portion of the message. Man, this is really good news. The next time your wife is having a bad day, say, I've got a redemptive answer, baby. And she'll say, is it a back rub? You'll say, it could include that. God has redemptive answers for everything we face. And guess what? Most of the time, they're really good. Actually, all the time, they're good. It's okay to have fun in church, right? It's okay to say the S word? Okay. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says this, the scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. See, if we want to understand this process, we want to understand this redemption, you just Adam, first Adam and second Adam, second Adam being Jesus Christ. The redemptive answer was that there would come a day when Jesus would come, born of a woman, fully God and fully man, and he, he was the seed of the woman, would crush the head, would take back the authority. It's the same pattern. So, so even in Jesus' life, Satan tried to steal the seed, right? What did he do? He caused all of the baby boys that were born in Bethlehem around the time of Jesus to be murdered because he's attacking seed. He's still attacking seed in your life. Even though Jesus Christ, we're going to see, has been returned to authority, he is still trying to rob the word of God and the goodness of God from your life and my life. He comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. But Jesus Christ reclaimed the authority. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. I also pray that you'll understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Listen to this. Now, he is far above any ruler, or authority, or power, or leader, or anything else, not only in this world, but in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. Jesus Christ is, has been put in a place of authority. He has been made in authority over what? A few things? A couple things? All things. Why? Because he deserves it, but why? Look at what it says. Because he's good, but why? What's the result? The result is benefit for the church. Catch that for a minute. Jesus Christ has been given all authority for the benefit of his church. That's a theology that's sometimes hard to wrestle with because we don't like to put ourselves in that place. 
Why did he have authority restored for you and for me? Jesus, after he died and rose again and was with his disciples, he came to his disciples, and we have record in Matthew 28, 18, where he says this, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Like he knew it. He knew that at that moment, that moment that he sacrificed himself, that he died and rose again, that he crushed the power of the enemy. He reclaimed the authority that was given to human beings. And he said, all of it's been given to me. And then what does he say? Therefore. And he gives us instruction. He gives instruction to his disciples. The therefore is telling us why he did it. What, what it's there for. Why did he get all that authority? So that his church could be built. So that he could continue the process of extending his authority in the earth through people by making disciples of all nations. This authority has benefits for us. I want you to check out for a minute all the great things he's supreme over. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Hallelujah. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on the earth. He made the things that we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Listen to this. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning and the supreme over all who rise from the dead, for he is the first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself And he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. He's supreme. He's been given all authority. And the great news is he has also transferred us from the authority of darkness to the authority of light. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. And he's transferred us from the kingdom into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. You and I are no longer under the kingdom of darkness if we're in Christ. We've been transferred into a new kingdom. Kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. What he did was not just effectual for him. It's not like he just sits supreme over all things and that's it. He sits supreme over all things and he invites us into that place. In fact, scripture says this, Ephesians 2, 6, for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and has seated us with him in heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Catch that for a minute. When we're seated with him, where is he seated? Next to the Father, right? Above all things, with all authority, on a throne. Where are we seated? Right next to him, with him, in him. Why? The context of that scripture tells us because of his mercy and his love. Like it wasn't just, it's not because we're great rulers. It's not because we're superhuman or something like that. He did it because he loves us and he's merciful to us. Why are we seated there? We're seated because of our union with Christ. You and I can't earn it. Thank you, Jesus, because I could not earn it. But we are seated there. That doesn't change the, the position that we're in. We're seated in that place because of what he has done for us, because we are united with him. And he did it so that he can show his grace and kindness to every future generation. What, at, what happened with Adam and the sin that came in the first Adam was completely redeemed. And in the second Adam, 
God says, I can point to every generation that comes, look at what I did. I accomplished it. Authority has been returned, and it's given to my people, and they're seated with me because I'm graceful, because I'm merciful, because I've given them union with Christ. Look at what I did. And when we refuse to sit in that place and understand what God's authority is in our life, when we refuse His authority, we are refusing His plan and His purpose. We're refusing the thing that He is most proud of that He wants to point to for future generations. Because He has called us to have His authority extended through His church. Ephesians 1.23 teaches us that the church is His body. And it's made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself, as we are united with Christ, if we are, as we are filled with Christ, he uses us to extend that authority through his church. I don't mean like the church building or the church organization. I mean the church, the people of God gathered under his authority and in his name. So how do we live this covenant life? I got five to six points, just kidding. How do we live this covenant life? See, we have to understand something. Hebrews 8.6 says this, and this is kind of a theme. We're not going to break it all the way down this morning, but it says this. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. This scripture is specifically referring to a covenant that we'll hopefully look at that God made with the people of God through Moses. But right now, what scripture is telling us is this, that, the, that Jesus Christ has been given a ministry that's superior to the old priesthood, to the old covenants, for he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. We have a new and better covenant. How many of you had a car in your past that was like your favorite vehicle? You wish they still made them. They were super reliable. Like this newfangled, fancy stuff. You're like, no, that's garbage. Give me the old one. Like if it could stay brand new all the time, you'd want that one. You know what I'm talking about? Or like you had an old tool or you had like something that, you know, a pair, a pair of jeans or something. You're like, I wish they would have stayed good forever because this new stuff is garbage, Right? Like, we're always like, kind of like, oh, I want something flashy and new, and it never really lives up. They don't make them like they used to. That's how we say it, right? But here's the thing. When it comes to the new covenant, it's not just a flash in the pan. It's not flashy. It is new, and it literally is better. We have a new and a better covenant with better promises given to us by Jesus. So how do we live under it? Let's just understand a couple things. First of all, this. It's living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If we want to live under this covenant, we have to live under his authority. He has to be the Lord of our lives. Sin and the commitment to it removes lordship. It says, I don't, it's literally saying, I don't want you to be in charge. I don't want to listen. I want to do it my own way. That's why lordship is such a big issue. Because here's the thing God's authority is good for us. How many of you love authority? You love being told what to do. Most of us are like, no, I don't. But here's the thing, when God tells us what to do, when we agree to live under his authority, it is literally the best thing for us. It not only fulfills his purpose in the earth, but it is the best for us. It gives us all that we need. And we are most free under God's authority. How many of you ever, when you came to Christ, people put a bunch of rules on you? And you're like, I don't know if I can keep all these rules. Here's the thing, under God's authority, when he's the Lord of your life, it's really just one rule. Right? When did all the rules come in? They came in after we broke the one rule. With the, the knowledge of good and evil, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they got all that knowledge that then put all the rules on them. 
And so we're most free when we're under God's authority. We're free from sin. We're free from Satan's domain. We realize he's lost his authority. Now, some of us would say, well, why, why does Satan look so powerful? That's because there's a difference between power and authority. Right? Uh, Satan's authority is gone. In Jesus Christ, it's gone. It's been taken care of. But he still has power because we cede authority back to him when we believe what he has to say, when we don't believe the word of God, when we choose sin, we cede that, that back to him and he has power. Not authority, but power. When we remove ourselves from the authority of God, we remove ourselves from the protection of God and we give ourselves over to the power of the enemy. And so he is powerful, he does have power, but he only has power in those places where we don't exert and extend the authority of Jesus Christ that's already been won. And so we need to understand that we are most free under God's authority, that God's authority is good for us, and that the seed that God gives us in our lives best grows in an environment of his authority. If you want the seed of his word to grow in your life, it's going to grow best under his authority. If you want the seed of his presence to grow in your life, it's going to grow best under his authority. If you want to see the kingdom of God extended in your family and in your job and in your schools and in your neighborhood and in this church and even in this nation or in this world, it's best going to grow under the authority of Jesus Christ. When we build our own kingdoms, it doesn't grow the same and it grows bad. But when we allow the kingdom of God to be our first and foremost priority, when he is the Lord of our lives and nothing else, that kingdom grows. Not only in us, but in us and through us. So if the worship team will come, how do we respond? How do we respond to, to this original invitation for the, for, to cooperate, to, to carry the authority of God to see his kingdom come in the earth? First of all, we have to realize that we've been called to that because sometimes we just settle for way less. Like, I just want to get saved and make it to heaven. That would be nice. And God's like, know something. As human beings, we carry the image of God to carry his authority in the earth. If God is going to accomplish something in the earth, even by his spirit, he's going to accomplish it through people. That's his choice. He's called each one of you to reflect his authority in the earth. And so how do we respond? We respond first by making him the Lord of our lives. Now, if you just take a minute and close your eyes, I want to give people an opportunity to kind of hear what God's saying without distraction. There are, there are probably some people in this room who have never really made Jesus the Lord of your lives. You've never received the free gift of salvation that transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You've never said, Jesus, I believe that you died for me and rose again on my behalf and that my sin is dealt with because you did it. And I give my life to you in response. I allow you to be the Lord of my life. I believe there's probably some people in this room who have prayed that prayer but kind of stopped at that Lord part. I'll take the gift, but I'm not sure about you being the boss. I'll take the tree of life, but I don't want the authority that you want in my life that comes with it. Jesus said, if we'll confess him before men, he'll confess us before the Lord. But if we refuse to do that, if we refuse to acknowledge him before other people, that he won't acknowledge us. Now that's not a guilt statement, that's not a threat, that's just an explanation of reality. If we want him to be the Lord of our lives, we have to be willing to say he's the Lord of our life. That's one of the things. It's literally 
standing in front of other people and say, I'm not in charge of myself. In humility, he's the Lord of my life. He's in charge. And I know that might be hard for people that are watching online to do that. Listen, we're going to have an opportunity to do that in a minute, so get ready. Not by way of embarrassment, not by way of pressure, but just by way of statement. Jesus is the Lord of my life. You've never done that before. You've never responded. If you're watching, you could do that by calling somebody. You can text in on the line and say, I've done that. Tell everybody that's watching on Facebook, I've made a decision to make him Lord of my life today. If that's you, I just want to give you an opportunity. People aren't looking around, but it is public. You're you're letting me know, and eventually people are going to open their eyes and stand. But you want to say, I want to make the Lord the Lord of my life. If If that's true for you, maybe you've never done it before, would you just raise your hand? I want to see that hand. I see, I see those hands. You can put them down if you put them up already. Anybody else? All right, so here's how the rest of us respond as well. And, and people who raise your hands, just stand with us when we stand in a minute. Please come see me after service. I want to talk to you about what that looks like and how to, how to walk in that. It's a brand new life. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the kingdom of light. If you've done that online, welcome to the kingdom of light. But what about the rest of us? See, here's the truth. Some of us have areas of our life where he's not the Lord. And I'm not, I'm not even, like, t- we're always tempted to go with the big ones, right? Like, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. Like, you know, the, the big religious things. I got those covered, so I'm okay. I'm talking about, like, some of those little things that are actually really big things. Our mind, our will, our emotions. Our, our, our desi- like, God, you can be the Lord of my life, but I'm, I'm going to hold on to anger because I'm justified in that anger. And God's saying, would you let me be the Lord of your anger? Would you surrender that to me? God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be uh, selfish. God, I, I give 10%. I give above 10%. I'm generous. And the Lord's like, yeah, but what about the other bit? And you're like, yeah, but I already gave you that, so why do you want to talk to me about that? Listen, God's saying, can I be the Lord of everything? We have areas of our life where we make deals with God about how far we want his lordship to go. The opportunity for us as the people of God, if we're going to come under his authority, is to completely come under his authority. Say there's nothing. There's nothing held back. Some of us know what that is. Some of us have experienced in the past. Some of us are wrestling with it right now. God, I'm afraid to come to you because if I come to you, you're going to ask for X, Y, Z, whatever it is. Whether it's large or small, this is an opportunity for us as the people of God to say the same thing as God. It's the same as coming to him in salvation and repentance. It's saying the same thing as it's saying, God, I recognize that you are the Lord of my life. I'm willing to stand and say that. I'm willing to, if you're online, to declare that publicly. There's power in that. We are transferring every part of our life that still might be in the kingdom of darkness. We're bringing it into his light. We're saying, you are the authority in my life. We're giving ourselves to the original purpose that God created human beings in the earth. If you want to do that, you're ready to say, I'm, 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 I'm all the way in. You're all the way, Lord. Nothing off limits. I just want you to stand right now boldly. Don't wait for other people. Don't do it because pe- people are doing it. Don't do it because you feel guilty. But just stand and say, God, you are the Lord of my life. Nothing is withheld from you. I'm going to walk in that covenant that you made with me. What a privilege, God, for you to partner with us. 
What a privilege to have your authority in our lives. What a privilege it is to be given. Not our own, but your kingdom. And to see it extended. We just give ourselves to you. No reservations.